Bob Webb's uh, thing about the Lakewood Country Club. If you're a visitor, once a month, uh, the class is invited to come out to the Lakewood Country Club for, uh, you can either get breakfast or lunch or you can get the buffet. And uh, prices range anywhere from uh, like for waffles and things like that from six ninety five, you know, you can go to the buffet that goes into twenty some dollars. So it's a big range and it's affordable for everybody. So we'd like you to come. That's right after Sunday school next week. Just let me know if you're thinking about coming. Let me know today, or you can call Mr. Drake Patterson. And Drake, raise your hand. Right, that distinguished man over there. Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Chapter 10. If you do not have a Bible, please, uh, there's one on your table. Please pick one up and find the Gospel of John. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last week we finished at John chapter 10 and verse 21. So today we will complete the chapter. Now, between verse 21 and verse 22, a two and a half month period of time elapses. So between 21 and 22, two and a half months pass by. Uh, if you look at verse 22, it says, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now what you have in that verse is you have two markers. You have a chronological marker, and you have a geographical marker. The chronological marker says it's the Feast of Dedication, that tells us, you know, when it is, uh, and it also says it's winter. Verse 23 says, and Jesus was in the temple, that's a geographical marker. So we're going to look at each one of those. First we'll look at the chronological marker. Notice it says it was the Feast of Dedication. Now, the Feast of Dedication is one of the non-biblical feasts. There are seven feasts that you can find in the Old Testament called the Seven Feasts of the Bible. This is a non-biblical feast. It started after the writing of the Old Testament and before the writing of the New Testament. In 165 BC. And what happened during that time was that uh, a remnant of Jews had uh, moved back into Jerusalem. And things were going pretty smoothly for the Jews in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, Greece was the dominant power in the world. But it was starting to lose battles with other countries that were becoming much more aggressive. And uh, Rome was the big country that was starting to become a, a world power, and Greece was starting to lose its power. And it was losing battles against Rome. And so uh, their leader, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, decided that he would invade Israel. He could win that battle. <laughs> so he decided to invade Israel, and when he did, uh, his troops marched into Jerusalem, and he marched right into the temple and took control over the Jewish temple, and he claimed it for his own god, Zeus. And he offered, he demanded the high priest sacrifice a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar in the temple in honor of Zeus. And the high priest refused to do it. He found somebody else to do it. And he named that other guy the high priest. Just like that. So this 
uh, led to a conflict known as the Maccabean Revolt. And it was led by the former high priest, a man by the name of Mattathias Maccabees, and his son Judas, known as the Hammer. Now in Texas we have a hammer. It's the lawyer Jim Adler. He's known as the Texas Hammer. And he'll go to, he'll fight the battle for you. Well, this is Judas the Hammer, and he decides to, to lead a revolt against the Antiochus Epiphanes and his troops who have taken over the temple. It ended up in a three-year guerrilla war. And uh, with the Jews eventually uh, emerging victorious and driving Antiochus out of Jerusalem. So when that happened, to celebrate the victory, they decided to cleanse the temple, which had been defiled, and rededicate it to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in doing so, they lit a seven-pronged or eight-pronged candelabra known as a menorah. Now, this is a, a candelabra that, uh, it, that functions with oil and a wick, not candles like we have today. Okay? It was an oil lamp, eight-pronged oil lamp or candelabra, and uh, they only had enough oil that would last for one day. And they were expecting a one-day celebration. But at the end of the day, the oil just continued to light the menorah. And the oil lasted for eight days. And they had an eight-day celebration. And from that point on, they assigned, they said, every year we will celebrate the feast of dedication when we rededicated our temple to God after it had been desecrated. And it's an eight-day celebration. Uh, it's called today Hanukkah. It was known as the Feast of Lights. Now, when did it occur? If you look at verse 22, it says it occurred in the winter, which is the month of Kislev. And it was on the 25th of Kislev, which is equivalent to our December. And so today we see, we look at Hanukkah as the Jewish Christmas. And when I was a child growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, in a Jewish neighborhood, all my neighbors celebrated Hanukkah. And it was an eight-day celebration, and each day they lit one candle on the menorah. And they lit a candle every day for eight days. And each day they gave gifts. And all my friends said, well, we celebrate our Christmas eight days, and you only have one day. <laughs> and they always would bring out this little top, a square top, had four Side, it was called a dreidel. And on the dreidel, on each side of the dreidel, was a Hebrew letter, and those four letters formed an acronym uh, that said, uh, a great miracle happened there, or happened here. And they would spin it, and the, each letter represented something else, and you could play for money, or you know, it was like a game. And so all my friends were playing dreidels. So that is Hanukkah. So that is the chronological setting for this event. It was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. And it was winter. Now look at the geographical marker in verse 23. And Jesus walked 
in the temple in Solomon's porch or portico. Now, uh, Solomon's temple or Solomon's porch was part of Herod's temple. It was in the east. It was on the eastern end of the temple. Winter time, great winds blow, and this was a section of the temple that protected you from the wind, the harsh winds that blew. And so the Solomon's porch was actually a porch that was 45 feet wide. So we're not talking about your front porch, okay? And it was, um, it was, the, it had a roof, so you were protected from the element. And on one side, the roof was held up by a wall. So the roof was held up by a wall. But then you had two rows of columns. Okay. And there were about 20 columns that held up this roof. And it formed that porch. Those columns were 40 feet high. So I want you to think of the columns in front of the Supreme Court building. And that was just one porch in Herod's temple. It was called Solomon's Porch. And in the wintertime, the rabbis would go there to be protected from the winds, the east winds. And that's where Jesus was. And notice what it says in verse 23. It says, he walked. Do you see that? He wanted to keep warm. Usually rabbis, when they taught, would sit down to teach. <laughs> but this is wintertime. And so Jesus is walking as he teaches, which is sort of unusual in the temple. And so that leads us now to the main section, which is the showdown. Okay? So look at verse 23, verse 24. Then the Jews surrounded him. Now that's not a good, good thing right there. When it says the Jews, which means this case, the Jews that were hostile toward him, not every Jew, of course, he had, his followers were Jewish. But when it says the Jews, it means the hostile Jews surrounded him. They encircled him. You can see this is sort of trying to uh, entrap him. And they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, this was the problem. Jesus was always vague about who, his, who he was, whether he was the Messiah or not. Twice in John's Gospel, he clearly comes out and says, I'm the Messiah. Once he says it to the woman at the well. He said, we know when the Messiah comes, you know, he'll do that. And Jesus says, I'm him. And he says it once to the man who was born blind that he healed. He told him he was Messiah. But to the masses, he was somewhat vague. And so they said, you know, why are you keeping us in doubt? Now, some of your translations may say, why do you keep us in suspense? Anybody have something that says suspense or doubt? couple suspense. Well, it's very interesting because this phrase, why do you keep us in doubt, literally means could be translated lift up our souls. Why do you lift up our souls? Now, what in the world would that mean, to lift up our souls? It means something like this. Remember, to lift up. It means, why do you keep us up in the air? That's what it means. Why do you keep us in suspense? If you suspend something, you lift it up. Why do you keep us in suspense? Come on, just tell us. Are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? Now, if he came right out and said, I'm the Messiah, would they have believed on him? No, they're not going to believe on him. So look how he responds. He answered and said, I told you and you do not believe. Now, he told them in parables, and it was always vague. Never 
just clear cut. But notice what he says next. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. All you have to do is look at the, the miracles I perform, and that should show you that I am the Messiah, because these are the signs of the Messiah. When John the Baptist sends his disciples back and says, are you the Messiah? Jesus says, go tell John the blind see, the lame walk, you know. It's the miracles that are an evidence that he's the Messiah. Is he the Messiah? Anybody can claim to be the Messiah. I can say I'm the Messiah. I mean, I've just been franchised, right? <laughs> According to Bob Webb, I'm the Messiah. And you would say, well, can you prove it? Well, I guess if I went to a funeral home and raised somebody from then, I might get some followers, you know. So Jesus says, anybody can say he's the Messiah very plainly. You need to look at my miracles. They are what testifies to me. Uh, but they don't believe. And he tells us the reason for their doubt in verse 26. He says this, But you do not believe. You're constantly rejecting my testimony because you are not of my sheep, as I have said to you. If you were one of my sheep, you would hear my voice. Remember last week, that was what this was all about. The fact that you're not one of my sheep, you do not listen to me, and you do not pay, obey me. The shepherd says to his sheep, come, and guess what they do? They obey the shepherd. They believe the shepherd. He calls them by name. He says, you're not one of my sheep. So, now look at the characteristics of a sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's not what these antagonistic, this antagonistic Jewish party does. And then he gives you the benefits of being a sheep of his. And I give to them eternal life. No, I give to them eternal life. So that's what they receive by following Jesus. Now who can give eternal life? Can I give you eternal life? I might be a doctor and give you a prescription. I might be able to prolong your life. But could I give you eternal life? Who could give you eternal life? The yeah, only God could do that, couldn't he? So Jesus is making some claim that uh, is beyond a human claim. He says, I give them eternal life, verse 28. Now we have a negative. The, re the result is they shall never perish. Result number one, they shall never perish. Result number two, neither shall anyone snatch them out, Jesus says, out of my hand. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, who's trying to snatch Jesus' followers out of his hand? Yeah, the Pharisees. They don't want those people to follow Jesus. They want the people to follow them. So it's the false teachers and the Pharisees and people like that. And he says, you know, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And they won't perish and neither will anyone snatch them out of my hand. Then he says in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, greater than all who try to snatch them out of my hands. Now notice that the sheep are given to Jesus. That means they're God's gift to Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, God has given you to Jesus. You're his gift to his son, which is very interesting. 
you might think that you came all on your own. That's how smart you are. Uh, but God has taken the initiative, in a sense. And so that's what Jesus says in verse 29, <coughs> verse 28. And then in verse 29 he says, My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, all who try to snatch them. And then look at this. And no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. He has a grip on you. Now notice that you're, you're double protected. Do you see that? In verse 28, look what it says. No one shall snatch them from what? My hand. But look in verse 29. No one is able to snatch them from what? My Father's hand. We have, we're, we're, we've got God and His Son gripping us and holding us tight. And no one is able. See the word able in there? That means they don't have the ability to snatch us from God's hand or Jesus' hand. And so now Jesus gives us his conclusion, or gives the Jews his conclusion. He says, my I and my Father are one. Now, how are they one? Based on the context, what does he mean, I and my Father are one? Well, he would mean, you know, we're in unison, we're on the same page, we are doing the same mission, we're both holding on to you, you know, we're in agreement on this. Uh, that's probably what Jesus would be meaning at this point. Uh, and along with what else he said, sets the Jews on the rampage. They really get angry at this point. They get upset. And so based on verse 30, look what happens in verse 31. Then the Jews did what? Took up stones again to stone him. This is not the first time they've done this. We saw this. He's done it at least twice before. <clears throat> now, here's the question I have. Uh, there are no stones laying around on Solomon's porch. So we're going to get the stones. You either brought them with you, <laughs> which would show their intent, or guess what? They had to send somebody down some of their coolies. And, hey, go down and get some stones. So, it's not a bunch of stones laying on Solomon's porch in the temple. So, uh, but they have this intent to stone Jesus. So either they brought some stones with them, have them under their robes, you know. It's like you see over in the Middle East, they might have a machine gun or Uzi under your robe. You know, they have stones under there and they're going to stone Jesus. And Jesus answered them. <laughs> now, notice that what you have in verse 31 is just the gospel writer John telling us their intent. And then what we have here is Jesus now begins to launch his defense. Okay. So Jesus, I guess when he sees them reach for the stones, he said, uh, many good works I have shown you from my Father. All of the works that Jesus does always comes from the Father. He never does it just on his own. And that's one of the themes of John's Gospel. Many good works I have shown you, in other words, I've performed in front of you, from my Father. For which of these works? Do you stone me? And what's the answer there? Well, obviously not stoning him for his good works, are they? They're going to stone him because he just healed somebody? No, that's a lot. That was it. Actually, what he's doing, he's being sarcastic. He sees them starting to, to go to stone him. He says, well, let me, wait, 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 before you do, let me ask you, which one of the good works are you stoning me for? So he's sort of being sarcastic. And he's also saying that he does them on the Father's behalf. See? 
uh, which come from the Father. See that in verse 32? From the Father. You know, why? which good work from the Father, from God, are you stoning me for? And so now we have this statement in verse 33. The Jews answered him, saying, and I think they said it with a lot of vindictiveness, For a good work we don't stone you! See? But for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, made yourself God. So, they've interpreted what Jesus said, that uh, he's God, because only God could give eternal life. And they're interpreting Jesus' statement, I and my Father are one. Meaning that Jesus sees himself as equivalent to God. And they say, we're stoning you for blasphemy. Now, according to Leviticus 24, if a person committed blasphemy, he was to be stoned. He's to be put to death. So they feel that they're keeping the law. They feel justified in what they're doing. So they're justifying their actions. You know, they don't see themselves doing something evil at this point. They see themselves protecting their people from this blasphemer, this false teacher. That's how they're viewing it. So Jesus now gives a second defense. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered and said, wait a second. See, that's how he said it. Uh, they said, we're going to stone you because you're a blasphemer. You make yourself to be God. Jesus said, wait a second. Isn't, written, isn't it written in your law that you are God? Well, now, what's going on here? First of all, answer the question. The question is, in verse 34, is it not written in your law? Notice he says your law. <laughs> it's his law too, but then he says, in your law, I said, you're God's. And the answer is, yes, it does say that. That they're God's. Now, where does it say that? If you have a footnote, what does it say? Psalm 82, 6. You see that? If you have a footnote, if you can read the footnote. Okay. So let's turn over to Psalm 82, 6 and look at this. Because this is the verse that Jesus quotes. Now we've been in the Psalms during the summer, and I think that this past summer, we just finished up in Psalm 82. <clears throat> And I think maybe we finished 83 as well. But this is Psalm 82, 6. So you can see it. When you look down at Psalm 82, go down to verse 6, and you see the statement where God says, I say to you, you are what? God. Now, uh, the word there, God's, is the word Elohim, which is the word for God with a plural ending. So thus it becomes God's plural, you are God. Some of your translations may have judges. Does anybody have a translation that says you're judges? Well, some translations have judges, but that's because uh, the judges represented justice, and they were supposed to represent God. And so in that sense, they were God's spokesmen. They were, they were guides of the people. So when you look at Psalm 82, if you just read it, uh, it says... Verse 2, how long, he says to the, his, his, uh, his representatives, his judges on earth, and the people who would judge on earth in Jesus' day would have been the Sanhedrin, which would have included these people that's talking to him now. God says, how long will you judge what? 
unjustly or unrighteously and show partiality to the wicked. So there's the charge that God makes toward his judges. He says that you are judging unjustly. You're showing partiality. Now, we see the responsibility of the judges in Psalm 82. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here's the responsibility. Here's what you should be doing. Defend the poor. Defend the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Because you would have wicked people would come and you know, take advantage of the poor people. And the judges were to make sure that that didn't happen. This is their responsibility, was to take care of poor people. Take care of people in the margins. Take care of people who couldn't take care of themselves. That's their responsibility. Now we see their penalty. Look at verse 5, or the conditions, rather. Verse 5. They do not understand. This is the condition of the judges. They do not know, nor do they understand. Look at this. They walk about in what? Darkness. See? All the foundations of earth are unstable. These guys, you couldn't depend on these guys uh, for anything. Uh, it'd be like depending on the earth when there's an earthquake. The earth moves, you can't depend upon it. You never knew which way these guys were going to go when they judged. See? So they were very undependable. This was their condition. And they walked in darkness. Now we have their penalty, verses 6 and 7. I said, God declares, I said, you're gods. See, God called them gods. They're not the big god, but they're little gods. You see the small g? All of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men, and you'll fall like one of the princes. So here we see in verse 6, God calls them judges. They're unjust judges, and guess what? There's a penalty for their sin. They're going to die. They're going to pay for that the way they are not representing God correctly. So when God gives them the responsibility to judge on his behalf, when they speak, it's the same as if God speaks, because they represent God's pure judgment, pure justice. But they're not doing their job. So he calls them God, but they're not doing their job. So now, with that understanding, you go back to John chapter 10, and so Jesus says in verse 34, they say, well, we're going to at you for blasphemy. You, you make yourself to be God. Verse 34, Jesus said, well, the Bible says you're gods. That God said it about you. And there's this conclusion. If he, that's God, called them, the judges, gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. In other words, it continues on. That's true. If it was true then, it's true today. He says, uh, do you say of him whom the Father, watch this, if God, let me read this again, because it's really important we get the whole sentence. I'll read it all, verse 34, 35, and 36. If he called them to judge his gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, in other words, it's still in effect today, do you say of him, that's Jesus, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? See, Jesus is just taking their words and he's twisting them around and he's, he's uh, accusing them of being duplicitous because they are gods themselves because they, when they speak, it's the same as if God speaks. 
but they're not doing it right. And he said, if you're called God's, why in the world would you condemn me? Notice in verse 36, whom the Father did what? Sanctified. I'm holy. I don't sin. I don't say things that are wrong. Look. Who the Father sanctified and did what? Sent into the world. <laughs> I have a personal commission from the Father. Why would you say I'm blaspheming? Because I said I'm the Son of God. So that is the question that Jesus asks at this point. And then verse 37, Jesus comes back to this works thing, which is very interesting. That's what he said. If I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But guess what? He does the works of his Father, therefore they should what? Believe. So this is what he's saying here in verse 38. But I do. I do the works. Though you do not believe me. Because the works, because the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So, Jesus said, you don't believe me, but you should believe me through the works, and you should know that from the works that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, that we're one. So, what's their reaction? Therefore, they sought again to seize him. That means to arrest him. But he escaped down here. First time, they were going to kill him. This time, I guess he sort of diffused the situation. So this time they're trying to arrest him. They try to they try to grab him. And guess what he does? Slips out of their hand. Why does he slip out of their of their hand? His hour had not yet come. Remember, past passes. So now we have this aftermath, and this is sort of interesting. He slips out of their hand, and he went away. Verse forty again. Look where he went. Beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. He got out of Jerusalem, went across the waters, across the Jordan River, where John was baptizing, and he went back to the place where his ministry began. And that's where he stayed. Now, that's very interesting to me, because when John baptized Jesus, three things happened. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and abided upon him. And God said, this is my beloved son. Remember that? In whom I am well pleased. And he said, listen to him. So what we have is this is where Jesus' ministry began with the baptism of John. And he goes back to where it all started. And sometimes it's good for us to go back where it all started for us. Where we first met Christ. And our life was changed. Some of you, it's in the old sanctuary across the street. That's where it started for you. That's when you got the Holy Spirit. That's when the Holy Spirit came upon you and God declared that you're my child. And I'm well pleased with you. And Dr. Criswell gave an invitation and you came forward. And that's where you can, you know, sometimes you can just go back in that building and go back to that spot and just stand there for a while. Where it started for you. For some of you it was in a camp. For some of you it was in a Billy Graham crusade. But you need to go back. And if you can't go back, literally, sometimes you just need to go back in your mind and remember where it all started. And for me, it was in the classroom, a psychology classroom at the University of Baltimore, when a psychology professor gave his testimony and shared the gospel. I can see that room right now in my mind. 
and then a little row house, a three-story row house that was changed into a Bible school called the Baltimore School of the Bible, where I first heard the Bible taught. And then in a dorm room, room 203 in the seminary, where God came into that room and my life was totally transformed. See, we need to go back. We need to go back to the beginning. This is a feast of dedication. What are they, what are they commemorating? They're remembering something, aren't they? They're remembering the first time they dedicated this temple, right where Jesus is standing. They rededicated the temple after it was not demolished, but after it was desecrated. And so the people, this is an event when people go back to the beginning. But not only do they remember the past liberation, they also remember, they think of the future liberation. When this temple will no longer be under the authority of the Roman government. And another Gentile dictator, this time Caesar, not Antiochus Epiphany, will be defeated and they'll be free from the domination of Rome. So we go back to the beginning so that we have hope for the future. And so Jesus goes back to where it all started. Look at verse 41. And many came with him, came to him over there. And they said, John, John the Baptist performed no signs. He didn't do any miracles. But all the things that John spoke about this man, Jesus, were true. Everything John said about Jesus was true and even more true. He's, he's beyond our greatest expectation. This is John the Baptist's followers saying this about Jesus. Every, we watched him now for, for two and a half years and he's, everything that John said and more. So that's what they're saying there in verse 41. And then verse 42. Look at this. And many believed in him right there. That spot is where they believe. That's John's people believe in him. And thus, they believe Jesus, and now they become Jesus' sheep. They become Jesus' sheep. The Pharisees and the Jews, they don't believe him. They're not Jesus' sheep. And when you come to Jesus and you begin to follow him, you become Jesus' sheep. And everyone in this room has done that. And because of that, we have a loving relationship with him. We have a living relationship with him. We have a lasting relationship with him. No one can grab him out of our, grab us out of his hands. We have a loving relationship because he died for us. No greater love has a man than this. They lay down his life. Jesus lays down his life. And we have a loving relationship with him. We have a living relationship with him because he rose from the dead and he's alive. And our relationship with him is not about just some person in history. It's a living relationship. And it's a lasting relationship because he ascended into heaven. He sits at God's right hand. And he makes intercession for us. Just think about that. Jesus Christ praying for you, making intercession for you. Just like we pray for the sick people today. Interceding for them. He intercedes for us. Is his prayers answered? Yes, they're answered. Could anyone snatch you from God's hand? That's security. Can't snatch you from Jesus' hand. They can't snatch you, snatch you from God's hand. Say, we have a lasting relationship with him. Jesus will next be seen in the temple months later. We're in December right now. That's the Feast of Dedication. 
January, February, March, April, they'll come back to the temple in about four months. And there's another feast, the feast of Passover. John's gospel is built around the feast. The feast of Passover, where Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of John's ministry. The feast of tabernacles, that goes on for about three chapters. The feast of dedication, and it ends again with the feast of Passover, where Jesus Christ lays down his life for his sheep. We'll pick up next week in chapter 11, verse 1, where Jesus goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lord, we thank you for a, a passage about a festival and Jesus' ministry during the festival that we know so little of. Uh, we read over passages. We read, and it was the Feast of Dedication, it was winter, and we just keep on reading as if it's nothing. We thank you, Lord, that there's a context. There's a, there's a meaning to this feast. There's a significance. It's the Feast of Lights. It's the feast where gifts are given. And we know that Jesus is the light and God has given him, us, as a gift. Oh Lord, help us to, to look to our relationship with Christ as one that's alive and lasting. For those of us, Lord, who have moved so far away in our relationship with Christ, help us to go back to that starting point. Renew that commitment that we can be energized and have hope for the future.